Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, the founder of Connected Editorial and the host and creator of this podcast. For those of you just joining in, Slow Stories is a series that deep dives into the rising slow content movement. In each of these episodes, I interview brand builders, entrepreneurs, and creative professionals who share what slow content means in the context of what they're building and why slowing down and creating thoughtful stories is more important than ever. This episode begins with a reading from Tanya Papanikolov, who shares a passage from a book that inspires her to slow down and aligns with her professional endeavors. Here's Tanya. My name is Tanya Papanikolov, and I'm a holistic nutritionist, a mycophile, an entrepreneur, and the founder and CEO of Rainbow Mushrooms. Rainbow is a medicinal mushroom company, and we cultivate and grow all of our mushroom products locally in Canada, and we are purveyors of a mushroom lifestyle. We are pretty obsessed with mushrooms. And something that made me slow down recently and stop scrolling is actually a commitment to myself to slow down and stop scrolling. So that has looked like taking some time to read a book before bed every night instead of being on any devices or screens before bedtime. So I'm going to share with you a excerpt from a book I'm reading called Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake. Fungi make worlds. They also unmake them. There are lots of ways to catch them in the act. When you cook mushroom soup or just eat it, when you go out gathering mushrooms or buy them, when you ferment alcohol, plant a plant, or just bury your hands in the soil. And whether you let a fungus into your mind or marvel at all the ways that it might enter the mind of another, whether you're cured by a fungus or watch it cure someone else, whether you build your home from fungi, or start growing mushrooms in your home, fungi will catch you in the act. If you're alive, they already have. Thank you so much again to Tanya for sharing. Again, the passage she read is from the book Entangled Life by Merlin Sheldrake. Now here's my conversation with Zach Williams of PIM. We can't always prepare for the unexpected, but we can pace ourselves when navigating tough moments. This is a lesson that Zach Williams has slowly learned through the years and is now translating to the masses as the co-founder of well-being brand PIM, short for Prepare Your Mind. While PIM offers a collective invitation to those looking to take better care of their mental health, the brand's origin stems from Zach's personal experiences after tragically losing his father, renowned entertainer Robin Williams, to suicide in 2014. Throughout his recovery, the redemptive power of storytelling ultimately catalyzed Zach to write a new chapter of his life. And through extensive research and an enduring commitment to bettering mental hygiene for all, Pim was born with a mission to, in their words, support feelings of stress, anxiety, and overwhelm with all natural, safe, and super effective mood chews. Products aside, Zach's pursuits in the mental health space have also reinforced the importance of slowing down to create brands and conversations with longevity. And in this interview, Zach spoke more about these ideas and shared more about the development of Pim, the power of preparation and resilience, and what he's learned about storytelling as a tool to support the mental health movement. 
So without giving too much more away, prepare your mind and enjoy my conversation with Zach Williams, co-founder of PIM. I am taking great joy in being a parent right now. Do I think that's primary to my identity? I think at this time in my life it is. It's so much of what I enjoy and spend time doing. But aside from that, I'm an amateur cook. I went to cooking school in France and have been really appreciating making food for my family. And at this point, I've gotten really excited about flowers and gardens and landscaping and things like that. This is something that I'm new to, but I was turned on to the art of Ikebana, Japanese floral arrangement last year. And it's been really exciting to see how people are pushing the envelope when it comes to arranging and developing new ways of thinking about composition and they're living sculptures. And I've been really enjoying that. I'm not actually practicing Ikebana right now. (laughs) We don't really have space for it. (laughs) Um, But I feel like this is something that I want to start doing because I've just had a great appreciation of the art and practice and expertise associated with arrangement. And so those are two things or three things. And aside from that, I've been spending a lot of time looking inward trying to understand who I am as a person. I think the past year has unlocked a lot of opportunity for introspection. And we were talking a bit before, and I think the term would be, as we've been stewing, I've been thinking about what what needs to get added to that stew to, (laughs) to further enrich me and enable me to be happy beyond being just productive, because I think we can all be productive without being happy. So I'm someone pursuing happiness. <laughs> I think that that's the broad strokes of who I am and what I'm doing right now. All very necessary efforts. It's interesting. In a lot of my recent conversations, I think what's been coming up more in terms of talking about productivity is less about productivity and more about nourishment and things that are going to be generative. It's funny, you mentioned you know cooking, being out in nature, and you said that some of these practices are new for you. And it's just funny for me because I'm sort of in that same boat, but I think about how abundant they are. It's just taken us an enforced stillness to kind of get back to some of those simpler things. And that's why I find it so important to start each of these conversations by asking my guests who they are and what they identify with outside of some of the things that they're known for. And I think during this time, especially with the sort of seismic shift in you know, our perception of self and how we overcome challenges, these are things that are necessary parts of our story. And, you know, before we get into talking more about your story and your work, I'm curious to hear about your relationship with storytelling and if there's been a particular article or poem or book that has made you slow down or re-inspired your definition of well-being. So I'm a big fan of, I guess you could call it decision science, how people make decisions and what type of biases they're adding into the mix when it comes to making those decisions. So from a book's perspective, two books I found really interesting and helped me really frame what it is that I'm I'm thinking through at this point in time, just, you know, from a philosophical perspective. One is called The Book of Why. It's a book 
by a man named Judea Pearl, who's a scientist focused on how people make decisions and how that relates to the development of algorithms that ultimately can inform the making of decisions or recommend decisions or even make decisions. And uh, that's been pretty profound for me personally. And then the second is called Intuition Pumps and Other Tools for Thinking. And that's by a, a man named Daniel Dennett. And both books are kind of quasi-technical. They're not textbooks, but they outline how the process of decision-making is laid out, both by people and by machines. And reading those two books has really opened up a new avenue of thinking for me around what type of biases we have throughout our day and how we implement those biases to make decisions, whether they're good for us or bad for us or expand into being for the greater good of a community. What is the greater good? What does that mean? Is it that the resources of the, of the community are growing? Is it that the general well-being is increasing? What does the well-being of a community actually mean? And how do we break it down into the set or steps of decision-making that ultimately lead people to ha have better lives? So. Those are two books that have been pretty interesting for me. I think we're, we're entering a very interesting time. Uh, we've been through a very interesting time, certainly, but we're entering a new paradigm in terms of how society is constructed, what we'll be doing ultimately to manage the climate, manage our mental health, manage equality on any number of different plateaus, meaning social equality, financial equality racial equality, all those different things. And I think there's this, there's this really interesting path for humanity and, you know, several paths that we could take. And, and, and I hope that we take the path that's oriented towards, again, the greater good. What that means exactly is up for interpretation. But I think for the most part, it means that the most amount of people are happy, feel heard, feel like they have access to, to high quality care have a ecosystem made up of clean water and air and filled with fauna and flora. And all these things ultimately, ideally would contribute to what I hope to be this new era. But you know, the question is, is that going to happen? Is this actually in our cards? And I think, you know, there's certainly an opportunity. It's just we need to be very focused around doing the things that are oriented towards the greater good. Yeah, they're all questions that I think the answers are sort of shape-shifting beneath our feet. But I think, you know, as we've been forced to look towards that path and also assess our relationship with time and pace, which, you know, as you were saying before, can have an incredible impact on how we make decisions and how we'll make decisions in the future. I've been thinking a lot about our collective relationship with Pace. And, you know, I'm curious, as you've navigated this new world, how has Pace taught you to navigate grief and ultimately healing? Well, another great question. I think my relationship with Pace is a little complicated. I tend to want to rush things. I think it's part of my obsessive thinking. And as it relates to grief, from what I've experienced, I've rushed through certain processes, specifically relating to my dad dying by suicide. And then other elements I took a long time to dive into and start really working on. 
in terms of my processing. So there were, there were parts of me that didn't really identify pace as being a thing. I, I wasn't saying go faster or slow down. I, I just was focused on what my near-term needs were. And that in turn informed how I went about conducting my life. But I think as I go through the process of healing, I'm starting to learn more about myself and realizing that when it comes to personal development, when it comes to managing PTSD and the trauma associated with what I experienced, that if you rush through things, you overlook a lot and you might end up glossing over some of the wounds and and issues that need to be addressed. And and often addressing those wounds can be really hard. And often you're not going to hear what you want to hear. And that was certainly part of my process of rushing through things because there were things I didn't want to hear because they were either hurtful or they required me to take certain accountability, which for times in my life have been challenging. And as a direct result of that, I find myself needing to take pause and actually exploring what it is I'm seeking to gloss over or just skip. And as I learn more about myself, I realize that addressing those hard issues, going into the more difficult things, it's it's challenging, but ultimately the benefit in the long run is outweighing the risk. And the thing the thing too about that is Historically, I've been oriented around if something is hard or I, I deem it as being too hard, it was something that I would want to kind of skip over in, in favor of kind of the path of least resistance. So it led me to being conflict avoidant and making certain decisions around my life that ultimately lead to a forcing function of me having to make the hard decisions and establish accountability later. <laughs> so, so I realize when it comes to pace, I've had to prepare myself physically, mentally, emotionally for certain hard things. And then you end up facing the things and addressing them. And often as a case, they're not as hard as you thought they would be. Or you get into a groove or a flow and suddenly it becomes something that's enjoyable or appreciated. And that's that's something I wish I realized earlier as an insight that I wish I had addressed earlier in my life that there are hard things, but it's okay to be intimidated by them, to be fearful and push and just pushing myself to go into and delve into those things and really unpacking what they're all about has been good for me. But it's a lot, (laughs) you know, it's a lot, especially if you're talking about trauma. Yeah, it's a really singular experience for everybody. And I'm just curious to have heard your thoughts as we kind of all deal with certain elements of grief during this time. And, you know, you've had some really profound experiences that you alluded to, both personally and professionally. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about how everything that you have done in both of those contexts has sort of informed how you're thinking about him. And, you know, are there things that you've taken with you and also things that you've left behind as you kind of start this chapter? (laughs) In short, yes. There's (laughs) certainly been things I've been taking with me and things I've had to leave behind. I am by my nature a people pleaser and in starting a company and seeking to create products that help people, but at the same time require building a team, fundraising, doing so in a way that's sustainable, that enables you to grow the company and your customer base. That's required me to think about how and why I seek to address the needs of others before I address the needs of 
both myself and also, you know, my company or our mission. So I, I've had to really think through my my relationship with seeking to please. And, you know, there's elements of it that are a good thing. You know, we're very customer centric. We want to build and innovate around our customer. But sometimes I get fixated. There'll be an unhappy customer who might not be getting their product in time, might be needing more uh, specific interventions. And I want to engage with that person. What is it that we can do to best support you? And that can be hard because it's sometimes not the best use of my time. And so taking and leaving elements of that people pleasing has been hard for me because I'm so oriented around that. Well, I can imagine just because so much of the brand's origin story is in direct response to your own experiences. And it's interesting, I would imagine, trying to build a very community-driven wellness brand when the act of wellness is so particular based on a person's own circumstances and I'm curious how much PIM sort of evolved from launch to to what it's become now and what sort of gap you saw in terms of how people can, I guess, experience wellness as opposed to just consuming it. So the thing that's really been interesting for me around our product development process and then launching has been how people think about using products to support mental health. The thing that we made conscious decisions around, specifically around launching a product that does not give euphoria, does not promote euphoria. It doesn't have a psychotropic effect. The insights that have come through that process of launching relate to how some people conflate euphoria, feeling elevated, high, whatever it may be, with being relieved. That's been interesting for me because you know the product that we developed and launched first is one that provides stress and anxiety support it erases it for some people at least in terms of their you know their levels of stress and anxiety and it doesn't promote kind of feeling stoned <laughs> you know and so some some people have written us and said we'd rather just smoke weed and <laughs> and that's interesting for me because i i was expecting that certainly but the idea that feeling okay, feeling better relates to kind of feeling euphoric is something that I've certainly participated in in the past in terms of how I've engaged around things like alcohol. But it's been fascinating to see how some people are interacting with products with the expectation that it will put them into a state of bliss or euphoria or, you know, some sort of elevated mindset. And that's really not we were what we were seeking to do. We wanted to create product that just helps you feel like the version of you that you want to be. And I've come to realize that the version of themselves that some people want to be is one of, you know, being lifted or <laughs> or stoned or or euphoric in a state of euphoria. And and that's fine. You know, that's that's awesome. But I I think it can be challenging when it comes to kind of thinking about creating euphoria inducing products, because then the euphoria goes away and you're left with your thoughts, maybe feeling low, but ultimately feeling non-euphoric. <laughs> and, and then what? Do you need to go and chase the dragon? Do you need to go and get that euphoria again to feel okay? I can only speak from my own experience and, and I did that for a long time and it worked out terribly for me in the end. Uh, specifically, I found myself drinking alcoholically over a period of time and that was devastating my health and well-being. And so when it comes to kind of conducting the company and 
seeking to establish new products and innovate around supporting people, we need to be mindful of that differentiation between feeling like yourself at like a baseline versus feeling like an elevated version. And, you know, do we want to create a product where people would feel elevated, boosted? And we can, we certainly can. But is that with the best interest of the customer in mind that we do that? And, and these are the things that I'm struggling with in the day to day. I'm very excited about what we're developing, but it's struggling around those specific considerations that do keep me up at night. Yeah. It sounds like it's less end game oriented and more, this is a tool to support people as they move through their day. And it's almost like a, a form of ritual. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly what we wanted to do when we launched. We wanted to create a ritual for people, but I'd, I'd say that perspective has evolved some in that we want to also create a catalyst. And that catalyst is helping people engage in mental hygiene as just part of their daily life. And so what we really want to get across to people who are interested in our products and what we stand for is our products won't solve all your problems in life. It is not a chew that will fix you. But for many, it provides a foundation of support that ultimately enables people to go and engage in activity, therapy, fitness, eating well, you know, ultimately, if it leads down other paths, like finally feeling comfortable to get prescription medication that suits them, or do CBT or EMDR or any number of protocols that better support people through, through their life, then we feel we will have succeeded. You know, we want to be very mindful of how we develop supportive products. Absolutely. In my past conversations with other wellness-driven founders or people who are aligned in your way of thinking in terms of being able to champion people in their wellness pursuits, the thing that keeps coming up for me and for them is the importance of looking to stories and accounts of people to kind of inform how to best support them in these endeavors. And as I mentioned before we started recording, one of the main sort of explorations that I'm interested in with slow stories is exploring, you know, pace and slowness and conscious creativity and how it's being impacted as a result of our digital age. And I think a lot of what we're seeing now is really in reaction to a landscape that a lot of times prioritizes the sort of performative elements of, of everything, of brand building, of entrepreneurship. And I think what we're all seeking is how we create space for actual connection versus just consumption. One of the questions that I always like to ask my guests is what this idea of slow content or storytelling means to them. So for you, when you think about that, how does it fit into what you're building with PIM? So there's, there's kind of two elements that I want to tease apart in answering that question. One is our mission-oriented approach. Um, I'd call it kind of the backbone of why we're doing what we're doing. And storytelling plays an extremely important element with that because with our team in talking about mental health support and talking about the advocacy work that you know various members of our team are doing to support the mental health movement, from my lens, it's really about how our stories, the work we're doing, relates to the story of the movement and how we can best contribute to that. And so it, it feels like it's part of a greater whole, a small part. I'm not saying, you know, we're not, we're not at this point, we're a small company and we're doing what we can to kind of contribute and raise money for causes and the like. But I think really understanding how our stories 
melt into, meld into the movement. I think that's very compelling for our team. They like to be standing for a mission. And the, and the, the story of why we're doing what we're doing is something that propels people forward. It's not just a nine to five that is getting people up in the morning. <laughs> it, it's about trying to do what we can to really push the narrative and to evolve it and to learn more about what's needed and what can be developed from a product perspective. And, and I think that's very motivating for our team. And then coinciding with that is a whole idea of kind of strategic narrative. That's more thinking about how we want to be shaping our story. Like as a company, as a brand, where do we want to be 18 months from now? What's the story that we want to tell? And we're, we're really thinking about how that relates to growing our company, engaging customers, further developing products that best support people. And, and that's something that's all relating to how our story is evolving over time. And so I think we take storytelling very seriously. I think it's a strong suit for our brand. And we really want to leverage the opportunity around people wanting to learn more about what it takes to take care of their mental health, to continue telling stories, to continue really thinking deeply about how what we're doing is enriching our life too. You know, I want the people who collaborate with us to feel appreciated and feel heard and feel like they're doing something important. And that all has a storytelling component. And obviously, storytelling is something that's so inherent to your life, even outside of the company. And I'm curious, I think naming of companies is always so interesting in terms of how it supports a brand's product efficacy and its mission. And I'd love to have you share just a little bit about the process of how you arrived at you know, PIM and how you think it's helping to change the stories around mental health and wellness. It almost sounds like an invitation, you know, prepare your mind. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's an invitation to get people to start thinking about what it is they need to do to take care of their mental health. When it came to the product development, it took us about nine months to get to the formulation that we landed on. There's so much more that we need to do in terms of launching products and, and innovating around our core experience. But I found that when I stopped drinking alcohol, uh, it was a very challenging experience to feel okay and calm during the day. I was experiencing very acute stress and anxiety issues. And my wife, Olivia, who's also a co-founder of PIM, turned me on to amino acid formulations as a way of managing stress and anxiety. And I would be taking a collection of products that were recommended to me, and it just made me feel like a completely different person. Well, excuse me, it made me feel like the way I wanted to feel. <laughs> Not a completely different person, but feel like a better version of myself. And so I started reading more about amino acid formulations and why they supported me through a challenging time in my life. And it became very clear that they have supported many, 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 many people over a long period of time through balancing the body's hormones and the endocrine system. But I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> so I had to really deepen my understanding and ultimately it's become very clear that with the right solutions, people can balance themselves out, plain and simple. And, and that in turn led to us developing our first product and ultimately continue to develop additional products, which we'll be launching this year and in the future, around balance 
around creating opportunities when people are feeling dysregulated to balance out. So that's been the name of the game for us is just thinking about what we can do to support balance. As you sort of zoom out and think about balance personally, professionally, creatively, what have you learned about preparing your mind for the unexpected? And if you think about key people in your life, like your dad or your wife, what have their stories taught you in terms of preparing for challenges and ultimately overcoming them? Well, I think in my family's case, especially when it comes to, say, my dad, who was entertainer Robin Williams, for, for context, he devoted enormous amounts of time to preparation when it came to doing whatever it is that he was doing. And he taught that in his kids, those lessons. And so I think for me personally, to pull off what you want to pull off from an aspirational perspective, it's become clear that you need to prioritize yourself before you can show up for others. And, you know, I've said this many times before, but part of that involves doing the work to nurture your skills, to nurture what talent you may have, to get to a point where you're feeling confident and clear, even if you're scared and anxious and feeling fearful around doing something, but you will have participated in the training to support yourself and establish a source of resilience to get through challenging times. And really, I think it's nurturing that resilience as you established skills and expertise that is really essential towards feeling more balanced in life. And so I think, you know, amongst family, it's really been about understanding, you know, this is from my perspective, understanding what it is that they've done to take care of themselves so that they can show up. And in my case, I think there's an element of service associated with that and that committing to supporting causes, committing to supporting others requires prioritizing taking care of yourself so you can be of service. And that's that's another element of preparing your mind, is that prepping yourself so you can really show up is something that I've taken on as a mantra. <laughs> it's a lifelong practice, and I'm sure it's only being emphasized as you are a parent now, and you'll have to probably instill that with your son too. And as you continue to kind of build on themes around being in service of some of the bigger conversations around mental health and well-being. I'm curious if there is a particular question that you hope people start asking more often because I think we just kind of go down these prescribed paths thinking we're only allowed to approach complex problems or challenges in a way that seems the most expected. But as you kind of look to the future, I'm curious. Well, I hope people start asking other people what they're doing to take care of themselves, because I realized that me taking care of myself required others asking me, hey, what are you doing to take care of yourself? Because I just wasn't thinking about it. And when I start prioritizing mental health hygiene, I like calling it mental hygiene just because it's a shorter word, but whatever, whatever you want to call it, it suddenly improves my quality of life immensely and gives me the clarity to actually be joyful and in going about my day. And then, you know, as a subset of that, I guess you could say a second question that I wish people would would be asking other people is, what are you doing to take care of your happiness? Or what are you doing to be happy? I think what are you doing to take care of your happiness is a mouthful and it actually doesn't make too much sense. But <laughs> what are you what are you doing to be happy? I think that's an important thing because I think really understanding what happiness is and how people can nurture their happiness is something that we need to be asking ourselves more. 
think it is a matter of to kind of bring everything that we've talked about full circle, taking the time to pace ourselves and to slow down and really remove ourselves from the distractions that have disguised themselves as forms of happiness or to your point of offering euphoria, but in reality maybe aren't key to long-term contentment. And this last question is a nice way to leave our listeners with a note of taking care of their mental hygiene and their happiness. And that question is, why do you think slowing down, whether it's online or offline, will ultimately help us live, work, and feel better? I feel slowing down will help us live, work, and feel better because it enables us to actually enjoy the moment. And I'll speak for myself. You know, I I can often be looking into the future so much where I'm not appreciating this present moment. And I think it's important to be able to say, hey, I'm here. I'm alive. I'm with someone. I'm alone. But taking the time to take care of myself or, again, orient towards service or something that is working towards a goal, that's all great. But the key thing is, is really being present in the moment. And if you're with other people, having presence. That's something that I've started talking about more. Just having a sense of presence, being engaged. You can't be engaged if you're thinking about the future or the past. You need to be engaged with your environment and the people around you. And I think slowing down is a huge element of that. That was Zach Williams, co-founder of PIM. You can learn more about PIM online at youcanpim.com and follow PIM on social at youcanpim. You can also follow Zach on Instagram at Zach Pim. We'll be sharing highlights from this episode at Slow Stories Official on Instagram and at Slow Stories Pod on Twitter. I'm Rachel Schwartzman and you've been listening to Slow Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in.